Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Jody Salmon, welcome so much to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Yeah, cool, cool. And we should point out, we were recommended to contact you as a, as a sterling podcast uh, potential guest uh, by our mutual friends, uh, Sheree O'Sullivan, who works at Noosa Shire Council. I've known Sheree for uh, quite a few years now, but she didn't know we had a podcast. And I was like, well, you're going to have to listen now. And she was like, oh, you're going to get, you're going to have to get Jody on the show. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. She's a very good egg, that one, I must say. The great contactor. And, and by pure coincidence, we should point out, uh, Reef Check Australia, your wonderful organization, which we'll get to. Actually, coincidentally, I should point out the week before you actually gave this podcast a bit of a wrap. Yeah, so that was uh, it was it's very uh, it's been very interesting, hasn't it? Like within the same week, a we'd actually put out your podcast as the one that uh, as one to listen to and follow, and mm. and then Sheree actually contacted us as yeah. well, saying you guys should actually connect. So very very serendipitous. Oh, yeah. it's fate! It's fate. Now, um, <laughs> Jody, you've probably listened to all our podcasts, um, <laughs> so you know that we'll love a good backstory. You know, we love to really dive deep. So let's go all the way back. You know, marine science. You know. We, where did this all start for you? Uh, so for me, it's a pretty interesting story. I'm sure everybody has their own interesting story. But I have clear, vivid memories of sitting on the step when I was just in year five, actually, sitting on the steps of my local uh, school, actually grew up on the Sunshine Coast. And me and my best friend at the time had pinky swore going, yep, we're going to save the world. And the way we're going to do it is actually by being marine biologists. Oh, so wow. I actually followed that all the way through. I planned my entire uh, career in terms of what subjects I had to study at school to make sure I got into university. My best friend at the time did not. He's actually a doctor now, so slightly oh, different path. What a loser. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I pretty much grew up on the coast, so I have always had a bit of an affinity with the water, and I probably didn't realise how much that affinity had really taken place until um, I was travelling actually in Zambia, landlocked country. Yeah, after three weeks there, it was driving me nuts that I could not actually get in the water. There was too many hippos in the in the fresh water, mm. and there was no ocean to be seen anywhere. And it was then that I realized, you know what, I cannot live without water nearby. Wow. And, and so you hightailed it back to the Sunshine Coast? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I actually, uh, well, I, I have spent quite a few years traveling both Australia and the world to some pretty interesting places and my relationship with Reef Check actually stemmed all the way back at university. 
So I quickly became known at uni as one of the people that would just jump at any opportunity to go and uh, go adventuring. So I became a bit of a um a volunteer, pretty much a volunteer researcher, which was really awesome. It did take me to some pretty cool places like uh, Lizard Island and Orpheus Island and some closer places like Magnetic Island. But Wait, Sorry, where much- is Lizard Island? I was looking blankly trying to go, <laughs> where is Lizard Island? Uh, so if you have a look, uh, it's part of the Great Barrier Reef. Lizard Island is quite far out, so usually you would either take like a, a four-day boat trip to kind of head out that way or you'd fly over there. And it's one of those places that A, was really badly hit with all of the bleaching, so absolutely decimated, but in its heyday, and it's it's a, it will eventually get back with any luck, but it is one of the most amazing spots. So it's on the, uh, on the researcher's trail. Most people out of JCU up in Townsville would know about it, but it's also just one of those coveted places. It's absolutely amazing. I actually, the very first time I got asked to go, Someone phoned me and he was like, look, you're in my class. I need some researchers. I'd love for you to um, come and help. And I looked at my calendar and I was like, oh, I'm going to miss like a week of uni. So no, nah, I probably won't. And then what? I literally within about, yeah, within about 30 <laughs> seconds, I walked back to my um, my dorm and went, what am I even thinking about? Like no one gets to go to this place. So yeah, phoned him very quick, smart and jumped on that bandwagon. Question's got to be asked. Is there many lizards on Lizard Island? There's a few uh, goannas. I don't. That's a really good question. I don't know as to whether that's how it got its name. Oh, we ask all the hard-hitting questions on this oh, show. Yeah. <laughs> that was, that was, that's number one there, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a lot of sea cucumbers. So they used to um, they used to be uh like a an industry from the island. So they used to there used to be a, an Asian population that lived there and actually would dry them all out. This is way back in the heyday. Hmm. So there's a massive um a mountain on there called Cook's Look as well, where Captain Cook apparently hiked to the top to realise where he was. So it is a pretty fascinating island and you can actually park in there and be quite safe from the elements in certain times. So, But I guess, I guess Sea Cucumber Island just doesn't sound as cool, does it? But I tell you, it's certainly not as cool as Orpheus Island as well. That that, that sounds super cool. <laughs> yeah, Orpheus Island is pretty interesting and that's, um, look, it's got its own story and without getting it completely wrong, there was uh, years ago, this is the very abridged version, but someone suggested, look, you know what? Giant clams, really hard to reproduce. So let's see how we go. So they actually reproduced a bunch of giant clams and released all the planula or the tiny, tiny little lava mm. into the water just out the front of the research station because they're like, I wonder well, what's the possibility of having all of these little guys uh, survive. Uh, turns out it's really high and there's a huge amount. So when you go there, when I was there a few years ago, they actually had to employ somebody to try and go down and they were trying to pull them out. These things are massive and they got so big that the original plan was to to get like a a helicopter and like take them out and then they're too big and heavy and so then they had to actually take these animals out and they couldn't even sell them because then they were worried that if you were selling the meat, it would become a delicacy and then you'd create a market for it. So instead, they just destroyed hundreds of these animals, which is devastating. Wow, this that's supposed to be a really happy podcast and depot. It was but like you it's still when you go there, you, it's one of those areas where you just find hundreds and hundreds of giant clams. And until you wow. start asking the questions, you're like, Why are they even here? Oh, okay, researchers. Wow. Well and, and so obviously you you're on the Sunshine Coast, so where specifically on the Sunshine Coast are you calling from? Uh I'm in Malulaba. Nice. Oh, lovely. Jeez. Well, I think today we got told that New South Wales can't come up and see you. 
I think the borders are officially shut. I feel like the borders are just closing in, in all around us at the moment. So what's the date today? The 29th of the 7th, 2020. Um, and for our listeners, Queensland's just shut off the borders. So both Jody and Brad uh, are from Queensland. I'm down here in New South Wales. I'm not allowed to come and see you. Brad, you probably won't be that upset about that. Um, but, gee, it's a bit of a crazy time we're living in. Can, can we just go back? So you said you did a lot of travel. What about travel overseas? You said you went to Zambia. Well, you know, Tell us about your other travels growing up. So most of the travels when I was really young was all throughout Australia, cool. um, just up and down the coast, like pretty much being a, a barefoot kid climbing trees and all sorts of fun things. And until I was old enough to surf myself, I pretty much just sat on the beach watching everybody else. So I, I did grow up on the Sunshine Coast. I actually grew up about 10 doors away from where I am now. Wow. Um, yep. Awesome. The, the classic local local that doesn't happen ever, ever yeah. again. Yeah. Um, and since then, yeah, there was, where to? I spent a bit of time traveling Europe like most people do when they hit 18, 19. Um, I found a job over in uh, Christmas Island of all places. Wow. Okay. Um, Ended up working there for a year, and whilst I was there, someone was like, hey, I need someone who knows what this reef check protocol is. And I'd actually just been researching and helping out someone up on the Great Barrier Reef when I was doing it as a researcher, and I'm like, well, actually, I do. Um, so that was my first kind of leg in there. And so obviously, obviously, Jody, you, you kept your pinky swear. You went through uh, – what did you study? You studied marine biology? Yeah, so I studied marine biology and then did an honours in marine parasitology. Well, Which is well, a little well, bit left field. Yeah, what's that? You'd have so to marine Jeremy this. Paras- okay, marine parasitology is essentially parasites of the marine environment. And the reason I went in to do honours on that, because there was a subject at uni, because it, there was two, but one in particular was called Implications of Body Size in the Marine Environment, uh, and the other one was about parasites. And I'm like, there is a whole course on dinosaurs of the ocean and parasites of those said dinosaurs. I'm like, this is the best course ever. <laughs> and that was pretty much what turned me. So are we talking about underwater fleas and ticks or what are we talking about? No, no, uh, just, just Brad going swimming. Anyway. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, when you go to the beach and, well, you get sometimes there's obviously those, those little mites, et cetera, yeah. but little beach hoppers. So if you move some seaweed, for example, and you find all those little things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Away. Yeah, so, so you- those little guys. Jeez. So how long did you study them for? <laughs> uh, so I did an honours, so okay. I only did that for a year. Oh, but, wow. Um, so tell us about them. I mean, you know, give us their 101s. I mean, for the, for the listener, I mean, I, I just know them as those little things that go, you know, hop, hop, hop. And obviously swimmers would know it as the things that sort of make it itchy when you go for a swim. Yeah, also that. Or if you go swimming even in the rivers, etc. So there's some little duck mites that live in there. So that when you, you know, if you go swimming in a river and, you get like a little red dot and it gets itchy and you're like, ew, yeah, yeah. this is gross. Yeah. yeah, so it's actually a mite that is trying to get into your skin, but your immune system's so good that it kind of kills it off as it gets in there so it doesn't get very far. So the red oh. dot is Because the, they always the seem to disappear. To you yeah. Know, like they, it's not like they, you know, pass up or you see something. They just get itchy and then it's like they're gone sort of hours or a day later, they're fine. Yeah, so those ones are all pretty, like that kind of stuff, It, it that's not a danger to humans, so that was – at least interesting. Some of the some of the other stuff I had studied previously was like 
gross things like what can grow in food and I got turned off peanut butter for a really long time. Oh, quick, oh really? Quick, I, I love just this had a Go, go. Tell me. <laughs> tell I, eat me. About five, I eat about five kilos of peanut butter a day. I literally just had a peanut butter and cacao smoothie. <laughs> and I make them for Jeremy every I love time them. he comes. I love them. So come on, tell the story. What is it about um, peanut butter? Uh, they're just peanuts and uh, peppercorns are actually the two worst things to be eating unless they've been thoroughly cleaned. There's certain things that can grow on it. So the same as, you know, when you, you go out for Asian food and you don't want to eat the rice if it's been sitting there for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yep. So for the same reason. I still reasons, do, though. Should... I still eat it. Yeah. <laughs> no, look, it's okay maybe some of the time, right? Okay. You can build up your immunity. Yeah. <laughs> but those other times, yeah. So nobody washes peppercorns, right? No. You get them, yeah. they're dried. You don't yeah. sit there and wash them before you use them. Yeah. So they're actually absolutely covered in stuff. So then you literally crack it. And I love pepper. Yeah, so I've got, yeah. I'm cracking like gross things all over it all the time. You're saying we're going to wash our peppercorns? No. That'd be too much hard work. Uh, okay. Well, look, I love pepper uh, too. Okay. So anyway, pepper, let's not ruin this for me. Ruin it for him. <laughs> so, what about pe- so what about peanut butter? Is that because you don't think that? the process has been done so that therefore you don't eat the peanut butter? Is there not something more that we can really get into bread? (laughs) I reckon we can certainly do it. It's something like, I don't want to get this completely wrong, but it's either salmonella or like E. coli. It's one of those two, which actually grows on the surface of peanuts. The same thing, unless you shell them, what do you, as you shell them, what happens? Like if you're eating raw peanuts for starters, then you wouldn't wash your hands or wash. Yeah, Usually you just no. crack them and eat them. Yeah, yeah. So for starters, you got it all over that. But there was, um, I just remember that there was a story about how they actually process it and how it's not usually thoroughly cleaned as it goes into it. And I, I just, I'm like, no, nah, I'm out. Peanut butter wow. was off the table for about two years. Wow. Do you know anything about the hydated tapeworm? Which one's the high dotted one? Well, it's this thing from New Zealand that we we got um, taught it, and I've probably stuffed up the name, but it's a tapeworm that can grow inside you. Do you know anything about those things? They are yeah. That tell us because they are just freaky. <laughs> Is that the really long one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, ones that can grow yeah. all the way up and yeah. What do you know about them? Yeah, that they're disgusting. <laughs> that friend, <laughs> That's a friend actually know. had one. Oh so, wow! Oh what? Yeah, and so to get it out. You have to get it's it's such a tedious process, right? So if you, there's so many gross stories that yeah, we just, we just YouTube share all it. Of Anyone them. who's listening, YouTube <laughs> tapeworm. Well, this one, this one comes out, and as you as it pops out, you have to grab it, right? But if you grab it and pull it out too fast, you break it. You rip it. So then you off. don't have it out of your body. Oh. So you have to get it out, and you tie it around a stick, and then so that stick sits out. Say so it's usually on your legs is when you get it, yeah. and then you slowly have Twist to rotate. It the stick over time until you pull the entire thing out. Oh, my Lord. So when it's a metre long and it's growing up and down your leg, ew. Right? Ew. You wow! <laughs> oh, this is not where this chat. I expected this to go, but I'm. And this is all about the Ocean Boutique <laughs> podcast: peanut butter and tapeworms. <laughs> Look, here's a hot tip: if you think you've got worms at all, do the. There's two things. One, always worm yourself. Like every six months, hot tip: always yeah. just do it. Yeah, stay yeah. safe. And uh, look up the Scotch tape test, and that's oh all I'll tell you. And then you can look at that. <laughs> Later wow. on, We're going to have a long list of show notes for this one. <laughs> you know, don't eat peanut butter or um, 
black pepper. Wow, this 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 is just going so well. Just, you know, <laughs> let's not even talk about work. Let's just talk about fun stuff like parasites. But that's the thing about par- am I right in saying parasites are just one of those things like in the ocean? Is it one of those things that we don't actually have too much science around? Is that a fair call? Uh, we probably do have a bit of science on it. Like I actually, so along my long list of, um, I worked in a variety of places and, and I was really, really lucky that when I finished university, I actually got an internship straight away with CSIRO. Mm. And part of that was actually looking at parasites and using them as biological tags. So there's a huge amount of research that goes on with that. And the whole point is that, for example, it was on red snapper and apparently red snapper happens to be one of the most popular fish for using for a lot of studies. But if you look up a biological tag, essentially, as they swim through an area, they'll pick up a particular type of parasite. So if you are finding these fish down in southeast Queensland, but they were actually up in Indonesia, you should be able to tell just based on their parasites where they've come from. And the idea is that then you don't have to tag them all because you're actually using the biological tag that's already there. Oh, Could the same thing happen to a human? Like if Brad went swimming up the coast... No, no, I'm this is serious. Like, would you know, the parasites stick to humans? I mean, could you, you know, because Brad's, you know, he's an ocean swimmer, triathlete, Hulk type person, loves training, loves swimming at 4 a.m. in the morning. If he's out swimming up in Noosa, like, you know, could, could you biologically track where Brad goes? Maybe not if it's just around the, the local Noosa area, but certainly if you were, it happens in, if you think about mosquitoes and, and midges, et cetera, so not everybody gets attacked in the same way. Yeah, why is that? Why is that? I've got my own theory, yeah. but I want to know. I also have a theory, so I can't guarantee that this is correct. But what I suspect, to a certain extent, not not going into blood types, et cetera, but instead thinking about, like, if I, I get bitten by mosquitoes and it sucks, then there's a bite mark, mm. but it doesn't affect my skin. But if I go to Indonesia and get bitten by a mosquito, mm. I do have a reaction. So I suspect there's actually subpopulations, and I'm not used to that. So that's kind of a tag. Okay. Well, I uh, no good theory. Good theory. My theory is bad blood. You know, like you know when you're out and your mosquitoes are there and there's a group of you, one person's always going to get eaten. You know, and it's me though, always. Oh, that I'm never getting eaten. You know, my my dad, he's like he's they just go for him, and it's just great. I'm like sitting next to Brownie. I'm like happy days. That's my theory. <laughs> Brad, do you have one? Yeah, look, I agree. Like, I've one of my friends is always getting bitten by mozzies, and I don't at all. And I, and it must be, I, I think it's to do with the odor that our skin emits that attracts the mosquitoes well, so, in the first place. So, what are you saying about Jody's odor then? No, no, no. I'm not saying it <laughs> smells bad. It actually might smell really attractive from a from a mosquito's perspective. That's the thing. They might think, look at Jody and go, "Well, she smells yeah, nice." Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. Going for a nibble. Basically. Well, that would make sense. But you know, okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, so. On Christmas Island, right, there's the most amount of mosquitoes in the world I've ever seen in my life. And remember, you know, they're 80% DEET? Mm, yeah, yeah. 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 Yep. So really good stuff for your skin. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. we're usually covered head to toe in big, <laughs> thick boots, like full jacket all the way up. It's sweat. It's really hot over there, but like everything fully covered. And then you would get your 80% DEET mm. and you would spray it over mm. your face because mm. it's one of the only areas that was actually exposed. And as soon as you did it, you'd have about a thousand mosquitoes come and like land on your face. There's just huge clouds of them. Yeah. And so whilst I was there, there used to be 800 people that lived on the island. It's not a big island. So I went to the chemist and they're like, yeah, yeah, you need to get vitamin B. That's what it is. It's a deficiency. So I started taking vitamin B supplements and saw no change in three to six months at all. <laughs> Spoke to another guy there. Yeah, yeah, pretty sure it's vitamin, D, uh, vitamin B deficiency. Oh, okay. How long have you been taking the tablets? 
six years made any difference? No. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure after six years, you can pretty, pretty confident it's not that, mate. Try something else. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you want to know where the, the um, most mosquitoes are in the world, I'm going to put my hand up and say Lake Makiro. West Coast, New Zealand. No. Have you ever been there, mate? No, but I'm pretty confident it'll be the Amazon rainforest. I, I, I was oh. in the Amazon rainforest many years ago. I remember I had the 80%, I think one of them 100% deep, and I had uh, a couple of layers, so like a jumper plus a, yeah, they a, eat a, a waterproof it, mate. jacket. Jeez, and they, they eat through oh, it. Oh, yeah. hey, mate. We've been eating, our mosquitoes have been eating through bloody. Shirts and you know bivouacs for years. You go to Lake Macquarie night. Like, this is how bad they are. You lie in bed and you've got all your all your nettings and stuff over you. You can actually hear them dive bombing you, trying to get through it. It's one day you'll go there and you'll be like, oh, psh, Amazon. <laughs> Jeremy's just raised another example of you know it's one thing to have a theory about your your area or is, is has more mosquitoes than the other one, but it's really important to have good science to back up uh, decisions. As like we like we've always said, unless you've got data, you're someone with an opinion. That sort of is a beautiful segue into Reef Check, uh, Reef Check Australia, and so I guess that brings us back sort of a little bit full circle into okay, Jody, you're general manager of Reef Check Australia, so. First up, I guess, what, what does Reef Check Australia do? So Reef Check is an environmental charity and essentially we're dedicated to uh, empowering people to protect our reefs and oceans. So we believe in hands-on action. So what we want is it's all well and good to tell people stuff, but we, we believe that when you have a genuine connection to things, mm. that's when you're going to make a big change, right? There's actually a beautiful statement that comes to head and it's this quote, in the end we will only conserve what we love. We will love only what we understand and we will understand only what we are taught. So for us, it's all about teaching people to protect our reefs and oceans, but from the privacy of their own home or out and about with their families, because local action leads to global action. Mm. And so it's really important that what we do is we go out and we actually do monitor the reef for signs of reef health. We train recreational divers and community members to do that, but we also train community members to be the conduits of this information. So scientists are really good at creating science, not always great at communicating it. And the community is great at communications, but not necessarily at the science. So what we try and do is actually become that join between the two. So we're kind of trying to check mm. both accounts. And, and to be honest, that's one of the, uh, I guess, the key motivators of this show is to actually bring science to, I guess, the, the, the general public to 
because it's one thing to for a science researcher to publish a paper in a, in the journal of science or something similar it's very rare for that information to actually be appropriately shared to a, a, a I guess a wider audience and then and then obviously that uh, with knowledge comes power and like you said with responsibility and basically motivates people to make individual actions in their own day-to-day life and with all that sort of combined it sort of just can create a bit of a a swell of change and obviously there's like in with a particular focus of the on the reefs of the world look let's face it there are they are they are needing all the help they can get well that's that's a good point you've got a lot of experience uh, at reef tech you've been there for how long 20 years something like that I first came across Reef Check in 1999, but officially with uh, Reef Check Australia since 2010. Okay, okay. Now, there's so much, well, not not so much at the moment because you turn on the telly, it's all about COVID, but, you know, the state and the, and the recent years of bleaching, I mean, how are the reefs doing? You know, how generally are they doing? And what can you give our listeners a, a bit of an insight to, you know, the last few years and what's been going on? Because it has been pretty horrific. Yeah, and so the first thing I'd say is that around the world, reefs are really under pressures from so many different factors. So we have marine debris or pollution. We've got development. We've got climate change. We've got heavy human use of the of oceans environments in general. But climate change has been identified as the greatest threat to the future of coral reefs around the world. And realistically, Australian reefs are no exception. And especially over the last few years, we've been seeing that within the Great Barrier Reef in particular. Scientific evidence clearly indicates that the Earth's atmosphere and ocean are warming and that these changes are primarily due to greenhouse gases derived from human activities. The issue is that as the temperatures rise, mass coral bleaching events are becoming more frequent. And that is definitely what's been seen on the Great Barrier Reef over the last few years. Mm. So for us, it's really devastating, obviously, these beautiful sites that we're going out to see. Now, with Reef Check Australia, what we do is we actually utilise groups that are already going out on the reef. So full disclaimer, we are going to the areas that are usually the most beautiful. And the issue with coral bleaching is that not all of the time does it look terrible. So sometimes when corals bleach, they'll become completely white, but often they'll actually be these really beautiful iridescent colours, these bright yellows and pinks, etc. And so often you find that people come up over the water or come out of their experience and be like, whoa, how beautiful was that? Look at all these bright, bright colours. So they're not actually understanding that some of these bright colours it's not actually so good at all and that it is actually bleaching. Can you just explain the link between coral bleaching and climate change? So when I talk about bleaching, it's really easy to say, look, coral bleaching is this, that or the other. But I find coral bleaching a really easy way to describe this is for any of the listeners, have a look around if you've got anybody near you. Is anybody here wearing any white whatsoever? So The reason that I ask that is that when we look at bleaching, it's really important to understand that bleaching is looked at in two different ways. Nice socks. (laughs) That's what? (laughs) It's looked at two different ways. So we look at the extent and the severity of bleaching. So when there are reports that say 93% of the reef is bleached, that's a really devastating fact. It's actually very true, but they're only reporting on one key factor. They're not taking into account that second factor of how we actually measure it. So if I look at anybody who's wearing white and I look at myself, I can see oh, I've got a little bit of uh, white writing. I've got, I've got a little bit of white on me. So I would say if everybody here in this virtual room right now is coral, anyone who has any white whatsoever on them is bleached, mm. which means out of the three of us, we are 100% bleached 
as a coral colony or as a coral mm. population, mm. I should say. Does that make sense? So yeah, the first yeah. amount is that we're 100% bleached. Ah, but if we dig deeper and we say as an individual coral, uh, maybe 5% bleached, maybe mm. you've got socks with a bit of white, maybe 5%, Brad, maybe another 5%. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, all yeah, of a yeah. sudden we're like, huh, it's 100% of the population is showing bleaching, mm. but of that population, only 5% of the corals are actually white. Mm. So that's the first thing that's yeah, yep. really important yeah, to that's remember. that's really, really well explained. I, Yeah, to be honest, that's awesome. Perfect. Well, so then the other part is that uh, when a coral gets upset for any reason, so usually it's to do with a stressor. So it could be too hot. It could be too cold. It could have too much uh, fresh water. It could have not enough fresh water. There's a lot of different things. It needs lots of light, et cetera, as well. So if any of these are, are realistically changed too much, they get stressed and they kick out their little symbiotic algae, which is called zooxanthellae. When they kick them out, that's what makes them white. Now, those little algae, if you think of a coral, like a massive apartment block. So this coral's living in there and he's got these little housemates, which happen to be the algae, and the algae makes all the food. They supply up to 95% of the energy resources and food source. So... This guy, though, he's like, something happens and he's annoyed at the little algae. He's like, you know what? I've had enough. And he kicks all of the algae out. But within about three days, four days, two weeks, a month, he's like, oh, actually, those algae were really, really helpful. And uh, they supplied up to 95% of my energy and food resources. I wish I could get them back, but it's too late. Corals can actually bleach and then they can unbleach. It can happen within about a mm. month. They can actually go white and come back. Okay. It tends to be any longer than that they start to really suffer and can't really recover. The other issue is that those little algae that live there, he'll never, ever, ever find the same ones again. So when they are kicked out, they float to the bottom and die. So then wow. he has to wait for more little algae to happen to come past their, oh, wow. their apartment block and be like, hey, I want you to come and live in here. Hey, buddy, I'm hungry. Wow. Yeah. But those algae will never actually give them the same thing. So when people say, we're looking at ways that we can make coral more heat tolerant. Mm. What they're doing is actually pushing a particular type of algae that is more tolerant into the corals. Yeah, okay. But, but they if don't you got rid to... of your old housemates yeah. and you really liked your old housemates, you know what you're going to do? You're constantly going to compare and it's never going to be the same as the mm. first time. Oh, wow. That's mm. that's extraordinary. Now, as, as far as CO2 emissions, you mentioned something that before. We did a podcast with the environmental cowboy, Corey Hancock. I don't know if you've uh, heard of Corey. Very exceptional young man. Uh, and he's into seaweed farming. And one of the things on the segment, Brad, I don't know if you remember, mm -hmm. he was talking about doing a trial or wanting to do a trial of seaweed farming out near the Great Barrier Reef. Obviously, it's, it's, a, it's a big bloody trial. Have you ever he heard of the concept of seaweed farming and therefore – maybe applying that to the reefs in a you know trial or anything like that what's your what's your comments on that yeah so i have actually heard of it before and if you've seen the movie 2040 there was actually yeah. uh, it it references that kind of thing in there as well and interestingly enough we're actually in conversations with uh, the university of the sunshine coast about some projects that are potentially coming up within the next 12 to 24 months and a particular type of algae off the sunshine coast called asparagopsis which is a red algae, which is going to save the world, apparently, which I'll talk to you about later <laughs> on. But it's really interesting that, yeah, so the, the idea, I'm sure he kind of spoke to mm. you about it, is that by having it, that's supposed to create like a bit of an upwelling, so it brings mm. cold water up. Yeah. Look, I, I don't know enough about how it would work exactly. Mm. I certainly think it'd be very interesting. 
It sounded really cool when we were speaking to them. I mean, apart from the obvious, we're like, what about, you know, all the whales, where are they going to go, ships, all that stuff, the concept of it. Geez, it blew us away a bit, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, there's a focus, obviously, there's a focus for using the seaweed farms on a mass scale to reduce uh, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. But uh, like Jody indicated, there's potential scope to actually uh, reduce local uh, water temperatures to mitigate the, I guess, sea temperature increases that are, we are seeing as a result of climate change as well. And there's super fascinating projects that are happening in the idea of like, how do we actually start to mitigate some of this CO2 emissions? Mm. And I guess that from my end, it actually really brings us into one of the other aspects that, which is how do we actually make these changes? How do we as individuals do anything? And I think one of the really important things to do is actually know what your impact is. How do you change what you're doing unless you know what you're doing? Mm, mm. So I don't know if you've ever heard of a um, the carbon calculator. Mm. So there's plenty of different ones around. Most of them are international. Hot tip, we are actually hoping to release one that's relevant uh, just to the Sunshine Coast in particular mm. and then expand that out. But the idea is you go in, there's a lot of questions about how you live, what you eat, what do you drive, where do you live, et cetera. And then it spits out a number. But that number is how many planets would it take if everybody in the world lived the same as you do? Yeah. This is not a competition, but I, as soon <laughs> as this comes out, Brad and I are going to do it. We're going to do it together so you don't lie. He's a vegan. I eat meat. I drive an electric car. You don't. We're going to carbon calculator this, Please. aren't we? I want to, I want to whoop your ass on the carbon calculator. Oh, I'll be like, please, can there be another ten billion of Brad Dalrymples? Because he's that, such. But that's so- really cool, Jody. Because <laughs> no, you're right. How do you make change if you don't know where you're at? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, that's. I mean, it's. Gee, it sounds yeah. Obvious. Jeremy, a classic example. Jeremy has this false sense of security that he actually is better than me in terms of carbon emissions. But with that calculator, I'm sure it'll be proved otherwise. Mate, you've got <laughs> dogs and you feed them meat. Let's put that into the equation. Okay, I don't have okay. Any dogs. as an example, as an example. Okay, I do have two little fluff balls called. Uh, Give me that Cosmo. stuff. They love their meaty treats, just like everybody and, and, and else. And what do they eat? They generally eat the meat that they eat. Genuinely, watch. There's always an asterisk with what he says. Genuinely, okay, well, they, <laughs> they, they have a varied diet. They generally are generally in accordance. Okay, let me finish. They, they, the majority of the meat that they do eat is kangaroo, and kangaroo are known to have a very low carbon footprint. Why? Because they don't. I understand they don't emit, emit methanes, but but they're not actually farmed. They're essentially harvested. Uh, but look, my dogs also eat a, a vegan kibble. Uh, for breakfast in the mornings, hey, and they have this a- is this is the Ocean Protect show, not the breakfast. <laughs> oh, now you're dogs. backtracking. Now yeah, you're yeah. backtracking. No, no, anyway, no, no, get back fine, to Jay. When the calculator <laughs> comes out, we'll we'll we'll. Hey, my I'm my car, my my uh, 1971 Valiant, which is right behind me, runs on 85 percent ethanol. Whoop de doo da. Awesome. <laughs> but getting back to this, uh, getting back to this, uh, com- uh, this discussion around climate change and, and the reef health quickly. So the, explain that link between, uh, the, uh, essentially the coral kicking the algae out yeah, that's and cool. essentially bleaching and how is that linked to climate change? So the reality is that as anything gets warmer or as our oceans get warmer, then that creates a stress for the corals and the corals will kick those algae out under any kind of stress. The biggest link between coral bleaching and anything else has actually been within temperature related. So Mm. temperature induced stress and therefore they actually start to kick out the little algaes. Mm. So when we talk about climate change, the UNSCC Paris Agreement states that we were trying to keep any increase in global temperature 
below two degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels, mm. which is a massive mouthful in itself. Yeah. But that means that's why we're trying really hard or why, why there's so much discussion around climate change and why we want to actually create actions that will mitigate some of that. So if we know that as the increase in carbon emissions goes up, that the temperature is also going up, what we're trying to do is obviously try and keep the temperature to go down or mm. keep it at a lower level, mm. which means we need to somehow reduce the amount of emissions. So for starters, that goes back to things like the calculator. So from an individual point of view, can we do things that will actually minimise the amount of carbon that gets out there? Or are there other projects such as these like seaweeds or mm. sea grasses? Can we sequester it that way? Mm. Is there other planting ideas that are going on that, yeah. are, that we have trees that can actually hold on to more carbon than others? Um, there's a lot of different ways because the other issue is that as the temperature increases and as more CO2 is actually pushed into the ocean, it's starting to change the ocean chemistry mm. and re results in ocean acidification. Mm. And some of the scariest things you'll ever see is if you think of plankton, so if we go all the way back to the start of our story when we're talking about tiny little cool things, all those tiny, tiny little plankton, if you start looking at their skeletal forms, over time because of ocean acidification, they've actually started to become less structured mm. and they're less strong or weaker overall. So that's actually devastating to mm. know. And that's happening in our coral forms as well. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. Episodes are released weekly and the next episode will feature part two of this chat. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.